this is Will Wheaton. You're listening to Radio Brendo Man. Welcome to another episode of Radio Brendo Man. I'm Brendan Creasy, and this week we have uh, Rhiannon Aarons, who's an artist, and you can hear me talking to her, so that's cool. Um, we talk about her art and pop culture and lots of other things. Um, sorry, it's been a while. I, uh, haven't really had much going on as far as the podcast goes, um, but I'm doing these when I can, so thanks to Brian Apodaca for finding the guests, and, uh, yeah, listen to this interview with Rhiannon Aarons, and be sure to check out RadioBrendo.com, um, for all the podcast information, and previous episodes, and also that's where our Amazon links are, where you can click to support the show when you buy stuff on Amazon. Um, there's also DreamHost. You can get discounts on hosting if you click the DreamHost banner. $50 discounts, so it's good. So yeah, here's um, here's the interview with Rand and Aaron's. I hope you guys dig it, and uh, be sure to check out her stuff, um, RhiannonAarons.com and TheSpiderMovie.com. That's her stuff. Check it out. All right, I'm here with Rhiannon. Rhiannon, yes. Rhiannon. Um, yes. And you are an artist. Um, yes, that is my official umbrella title. Um, I also write and I uh, perform and I make films. So what do you, what kind of art do you do? Um, I consider myself more of a cultural producer than an artist person okay. on some levels. It's, um, not that I don't define with being an artist. I definitely do, but I think it just explains what I do a little bit more thoroughly. It's uh, similar to the model that Zachary Drucker of Transparent has, right? Where Zachary went to art school makes photographs, shows in galleries, does short films, produces on transparent. But all of it is related to just making things that are cultural artifacts or records of human creativity. So what's what are some of your um do you do like pieces or do you do like what do you make? I make all kinds of objects. So I'm a classically trained painter. I went to Otis um, in the early 2000s, and I studied with John Sonsini and Carol Karimpas, Kenny Scharf, uh, Meg Cranston. We had some really amazing artists teaching there at that time. Um, so I paint, I make prints, I do some drawings. I also do some sculpture, conceptual art, performance um, I really work off of concepts more when I'm making work. And so whatever objects or performance, whatever is necessary to convey that thesis to my audience is the shape that the show takes. So how did you, when did this, have you been, 
have you been doing this since your whole life or is this something that came like how did you get into art what got you into art I started taking studio art classes when I was 16. I tested out of high school early. Oh, wow. And, yeah, it was. Uh, I recommend it for uh, 16-year-olds out there who don't like high school. The California high school proficiency exam is a good way to kind of skip a couple of years of it, and then you can go straight into college. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I really recommend that for people who... Um, you know, are really interested in careers or pursuing educational paths that are not necessarily supported by a high school structure. So while there are some really good arts high schools, mine was not one of them. Mine was an athletic school, and so I couldn't get what I needed from that environment. So you went to an arts college? Um, I went initially to a community college. I went to okay. Old West College in Huntington Beach. Um, Did you grow up around here? I grew up in Fountain Valley. That was okay. how I met uh, Brian, your talent coordinator. Gotcha. We went to Golden West College together. And we okay. Were in the same creative writing class. Okay, cool. Um, so I started my, you know, I made my portfolio there, and I was trying to get into the animation program at Cal Arts. Um, because I wanted to do ink and paint, manual ink and paint, when they used to have cell animation. You yeah. Could do cell vinyl. And in the period when I was making my portfolio, they started to develop uh, the ink and paint software. And because I didn't really want, I was working as a graphic designer also at that time to support you know, paying for school. Um, and I just didn't want to spend the rest of my life behind a computer. Yeah. So once that became the only option for doing that, I thought, well, what am I missing? And so I went into painting instead. Um, so the, the animator life didn't happen? It didn't, and I think, realistically speaking, it wasn't really the life for me. You know, it was really upsetting for me to see the industry take that term, turn, and, um, you know, it was also really hard for me not to get into the arts uh, animation program. I wanted to at CalArts initially when I was younger. I applied two or three times, I think, and got rejected. I had one classmate that got in, and he had to apply seven times because that program's so competitive. Wow. Um, but I don't think I would be, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been happy um, sitting behind a computer all day and colorizing someone else's animation. You know, that really wasn't what it was about for me. It was about being with the materials and being with the medium. And I like the idea of working collaboratively, but, you know, I, I try to step away from things that are exclusively digital. I feel like it um, really cuts off my connection with the world in a profound way, and I feel as the world's becoming more digital, that we're recording on a digital medium, right? But you know, it's, it, we're recording on a digital medium. We don't see the interface of the machine anymore. I don't have my reel to reel. I love reel to reel. I think it's such an interesting aesthetic, you know, that old technology. Um, but you know, I think it's important to, to step away from that now because you look at production, like, you know, the new blade runner, they talk about the great blackout, we're priming ourselves for that to actually be a reality. If we don't stay invested in manual mediums and in physical objects, we can lose so much of civilization. So is that what you you see yourself as like a keeper of that? I think all artists see themselves as a keeper of that, all creative people, right? That's why you want that record and that certain level of immortality, I think. You know, most Most creators are trying to cheat death in a certain way. So you went to art school, and you became a painter. 
I did. It wasn't very straightforward. There's a lot of things you kind of have to do to keep a practice running as a young artist if you don't come from a lot of privilege. So I showed paintings consistently, and I started making digital prints. Um, I was also teaching. I was working as a dominatrix to support my practice. Um, working in studios as a studio assistant also and doing some fabrication as well. How'd you get into dominatrix? Craigslist. Yeah. Source of good, all things good and evil. Yeah. You just found Craigslist. You're like, this sounds like something I'm going to do. Well, the early days of Craigslist. And I mean, I've been, I've been invested in that lifestyle pretty much since I started to evolve as a sexual entity on this planet. Gotcha. You know, those mechanisms and that aesthetic has always been really interesting to me. Um, so I was on Craigslist looking for a job after I graduated from art school. And the one I came across was assistant dominatrix, which I thought, well, I, you know, I'll give it a go for a couple days. And so I, I went in and I really liked it. And I ended up doing it, you know, really for the next really like 10, 12 years. Wow. Yeah. I, I liked the tie in with, with performance art and performative practices. You know, that element was interesting for me. Gotcha. So, um, so you're also, you're involved in film? You, you do film stuff? I have started producing films, um, as part of my production. It was kind of accidental. I've been doing a little more video work because with the performance, obviously, the dominant documentation right now is video. Um, so I got into doing some editing work when I was doing the performances um, off of the Bob Flanagan legacy. I did all the editing on the viewing um, when we sc- when we screened it. And I recently produced the movie as the short film Spider. I produced and acted in it, and it was based off of a short story by Dana Hammer, who's a horror fiction novelist. So it's a horror film. It's a short horror comedy. It's a, an unexplored genre, I feel. You know, I think um, the ABCs of death starts to tap into that a little bit, where there's these scenes that are both grisly and kind of funny, and I think that horror is really lacking that. So Dana's aesthetic was you know, very much part of that genre, and I thought it would be interesting to try and fill that gap a little bit culturally. So what are some of your influences um, film-wise? Film-wise, um, Nina Menkes is a big one. I used to work for her oh, when cool. I was younger. Yeah, she's a really amazing filmmaker. Um, she was my next-door neighbor when I was going to art school, and that was how we met. Um, so I worked with her doing some prep work for her film Heatstroke, which still has not been produced. So any producers out there who want a killer film, something to look at. Um, so... Nina Mekis is a big one, you know, both personally and creatively. David Lynch is someone I look at a lot in terms of film. Um, Werner Fassbinder, I always really liked, kind of, you know, I, I look at uh, auteur directors a lot. Like Wes Anderson is someone I really love as a filmmaker, too. What about you? Who do you like? Um, my favorite filmmaker is probably Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam's got a good sensibility to him, you know. And I like um, Coen Brothers. Yeah, I love the Coen Brothers. Yeah, I think they're really very good postmodernists, you know. 
and I like Kevin Smith, but that's just something I grew up with. Well, like Kevin Smith gorilla style, I've always really admired too. Yeah. We, we produce films that way. You know, we have people occupying three or four roles on a crew because it's, we're doing it with what we have. Um, and I think that making that kind of film is really important right now because we have such an emphasis on these huge blockbusters, which are yeah. fantastic. You know, like Joss Whedon is one of my favorite filmmakers. Okay. Ways, you so know? you're a Buffy fan? Oh, yeah. I absolutely well, we can talk about Buffy. We can talk some Buffy then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. You know, I think Buffy is one of the more interesting um, ways of working with existing narrative that has been produced within the last, you know, probably 50 years. Yeah, Joss does a hell of a reboot, right? But Buffy, I really think it was interesting that he took this movie that didn't really succeed in the box office. R.I.P. Luke Perry, by the way. Yeah. Very sad. Yeah, that was very sad. And he's great in Buffy. He's great in everything, but... He is. He really... It was a loss. Um, so you're talking about Buffy, and now he took that movie that was that was kind of a failure. In yeah, I think it's really interesting in terms of looking at integrating the cultural results of feminism into something that is inherently not feminist, right? Yeah. So the first Buffy, she is this kind of ditzy cheerleader and that character doesn't really evolve even though she's stepping up and slaying the vampires right right? she doesn't have the layers that our buffy has but that's the thing when buffy starts it's that buffy yeah that's true so the interesting thing is that edge of realism where whedon takes that buffy and shows that you know this is fighting this battle is trauma and that's something they definitely tap in on in the later seasons when, you know, they get Faith into the mix and she has that um, casualty when she accidentally stakes a human, right? Yeah. That that kind of lifestyle has an impact on someone that changes them, right? And I think that's something that we don't look at in horror. We like to keep it in that fantasy realm of not looking of, like, what is the impact of that? Maybe with the exception of, you know, like Halloween, right, has started to... Halloween reboot, which I haven't seen, but I heard a great interview with Jamie Lee Curtis about how it starts to talk about the trauma of surviving horror. And I think that Buffy was one of the first kind of genre explorations that started to look at that. You know, and I see that as a reoccurrent theme in a lot of Whedon's work too, the um, kind of that burden of managing heroism and managing trauma. And I think that that's really interesting to me because you can't have one without the other right and so I think that element makes heroes all heroes inherently very dark how are you handling all the me too instances that are coming out including against Joss Whedon I wasn't aware that Joss Whedon had allegations well it was just his ex-wife said a lot of stuff like that she she wrote a whole big thing about how he was very emotionally abusive and some other stuff. That's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. And, it's, you know, that's something... You'd have to read it. It's it's very personal. I bet, you know, and that's... It's it's a difficult thing to try and deal with because I, I'm a sexual assault survivor and so I was very outspoken about Me Too. Um, and I have been being in creative fields 
there's a lot of ways people are exploited in industries that are creative because they're competitive yeah. across the board. You know, and the level of sexual exploitation that was going on that was rampant that, you know, I saw going on in our culture in various permutations and experienced also, you know, from the ages of 14 on. Um, it's horrible and it's damaging and it's damaging to the victims and I think it's damaging to our culture. Um, but I think one of the things that we are really failing to look at too is that while there are so many men that have been accused and many of them are men in power. Many of them are men who are very strong creators, right? We also really need to look at the social infrastructure that enabled all of that behavior. Yeah. And so, yes, I think people who are directly responsible for this, who have been called out, they need to do some serious atonement. But we also need to figure out as a culture, what does that atonement look like? Because we can't just, Walk everyone Put out. everyone in jail or fake jail or director jail or whatever, you know. Well, you know, I do think that all, all creative industries, especially film, right, they're so male-dominated and they're so white cis male-dominated. Yeah. I think something we need to look at, it's kind of the same issue that drives Occupy Wall Street, right? You have this very small percentage of any population holding all the resources and all the power over a given medium. And this happens in the fine art world also. You know, you have people like Jeff Koons and Matthew Barney who have these practices with these enormous production values that are enabled by their privileged status, right? I mean, a Matthew Barney movie is a fortune. All of those props are a fortune. He made that money because he was an Ivy Leaguer that modeled for GQ. And I think... You know, the film industry is very much the same way because film is a very expensive medium. People who have money, who have power, who have privilege dominate that medium. And with that comes a very inflated sense of entitlement. And with that comes a professional culture that enables abuse. And we really have to look at the structure of that, I think, in order both to make room for people who are probably amazing creators. I mean, you see like, you know, Black Panther, that whole crew coming up through the fray, right? That's a a very different voice than what we've had dominantly um, in comics adapted in, you know, um, comics driven movies. And that's a recent, very recent cultural. Yeah. So I think that the feminist tip, we're starting to see it, you know, in like House of Cards, right? That last season of House of Cards was, I think, probably the, you know, highest articulation of what post Me Too Hollywood maybe looks like in a certain way. Um, but I don't think we have a solution for that problem either, you know, and it's one of the things I really struggle with also because I think Polanski is a really powerful filmmaker. Yeah, that's the, oh man. And, but, you know, it's like you can be a bad person and make great art. Well, we're just having the Michael Jackson thing came back again because of a new documentary. Hmm. and uh, Leaving Neverland. Yeah. So now that's back in the, everybody's everybody's talking about that. I've heard it on the radio. Like, are you going to listen to Michael still? And I'm like, it comes on. Sometimes I can't help. Uh, you know, some of those, they're bops. But that man did horrible things. And it's pretty cut and dry what happened i mean at this point there's enough evidence out there that it's horrific 
Well, I think culturally that's also something we've always known about him, though. I mean, yeah. His allegations came up when I was in... Uh, yeah, in the early 90s. Yeah, so, you know, that's one of the things. I think that that's that cultural infrastructure, right, it's been tolerated for so long that it's been normalized to us. And so it's kind of that continued conversation. Do we take the Picassos off the wall? Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe... Maybe we should for a while, you know, or maybe we, maybe we start giving things context and cultural acknowledgement also because it's like Michael Jackson tunes, they are just bops, right? But this was an aesthetic that was so dominant that was the aesthetic of someone who did these really horrible things. Right. And we all sublimate things through style that we're not aware of. It's in there. It's all in there. You know, you're casually dancing to something that was made by someone like that. What is it doing to your right. being, your brain chemistry? Yeah, and we we are just developing the mechanisms scientifically to look at those things, but that's not where we're putting that technology either, right? So I think we don't really fully understand as a culture how much cultural production impacts us and in what way. You know, and that's across the board. I think we have a culture that's driven by... Harvey Weinstein, Michael Jackson. You know, I play a game with myself sometimes when I'm in the car. I always still listen to uh, FM radio. Yeah, me too. It's yeah, I think it's it's a good medium we should all support. Nothing against the podcast. Because <laughs> um, you know, I would be shooting myself in the foot here, right? But I think it's important to listen to media that's not mediated by an algorithm. I think that that is important in terms of finding new things and expanding your horizons because I worry that we're running into a very personally enclosed culture now because yeah. things are so recognized. But, I mean, the other thing I really like to do is I like to play Find the Female Voice on the FM dial. You know, and that that is always very interesting to me because it's never the majority of what's on the spectrum. Right. You can go for a good 20 minutes. And sometimes you'll get back-to-back songs by the same top 40 male artists on stations that are close to each other, like K-Rock or all. Yeah, K-Rock made a point of actually playing all women music on Friday because it was International Women's Day, and it was so refreshing and cool to hear all that. Yeah, it was a different radio experience. Um, I thought it was kind of funny that I was listening to Jensi's Jukebox that day also, and he had songs that were about women, but not a lot of songs that were by women, and it was like, this is kind oh, of a Jody, come on, man. decision. <laughs> right. So it has Josie for you. I know. But, yeah, Sex Pistols, that style was made by a woman. So Vivian Westwood, no punk without her. So, you know, that's something to think about, too, in terms of production in general. It's like if we can if we can at least redistribute the exposure and the resources so that they're not all held by one demographic of any kind that exercises a lot of privilege, I think that's really the cultural change we need to see from Me Too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that enables... And that seems to be sort of happening. There seems to be more female voices out there, more females in power and power positions, not just creative positions, but actual power positions. I mean, that seems to be where the change needs to happen and is slowly, slowly happening. Well, we're starting to see the infrastructure to support that. There are, I think, more, um, there are a lot more women's development workshops that are targeted yeah. at women now. Going I've noticed that a lot. I've noticed friends are participating in things like that. 
Yeah, I heard that.、Um, I think HBO does one, but then we also have some things happening too that the channels of distribution have changed. Right,、yeah. we don't have network dominance anymore. So that added to it, kind of the playing field is a little bit more level. And then you have films like you know Tangerine that are all shot on an iPhone,、right. which enables a whole、Florida、different level of filmmaking. I think we had a window for a long time. You know, we had a lot of independent film in the '70s because,、yeah. inflation-wise, you could still make a decent movie for a fair amount. Yeah, yeah. and there was、right. a lot of studios out there willing to take the risks that they don't take now. The pre-blockbuster era Hollywood was very different. I don't think people realize that. Right, and we had this whole blockbuster era, you know, through the '80s, '90s. I mean, I think really into. When broadband kind of became a mainstay, so like 2000, probably 10, right? Everyone、yeah. started having broadband. I would say that's a good year for when we hit kind of total. Everybody's got broadband, yeah. Well, it's the thing we we assume everyone has broadband, but they still have tons of people that don't. That's the thing, like. That cultural flow is always a big issue, right? It's like I always wonder what artists are doing in areas that don't have broadband. But short of going to those areas, there's no way to really find、right. out. And yeah, you know, that's interesting to me too, as as technology and as there's the entire regions of our country that still don't have broadband internet and things like that. Oh yeah, in other countries, and we have no, especially yeah, you know that are restricted, like China, where it's.、Yep. Yeah, I lived in China. <laughs> I lived in China for nine months, so I've, I was I experienced the Great Firewall there. Yeah, what couldn't you get? What did you miss? Well, it would change every day. Like one day CNN would be blocked, and the next day it wouldn't, and then another day, like it changed all the time. But I had a I tunneled around it. That's how I I actually learned Linux and hack some hacking skills. <laughs> My friend taught me how to like get around the firewall. Yeah, most of my friends who've lived in China for any length of time who are American have figured that out. You learn some hacking skills, and it's not that hard. Especially now, there's stuff that is designed, like the whole Tor network is designed for that, like to get around the firewalls in foreign countries, and and we use it here in America to buy drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you can't get anything online now. You know that's something that's interesting to me too. As, as certain countries start getting more access or start figuring out, you know, ways to get around those firewalls, how those underground cultures develop and become visible, is something that I, I like to watch. Speaking of tech,、um, you mentioned in your questionnaire, you mentioned biohacking. Oh yeah. What did what did what did what kind of stuff are you in? Like I'm not I'm not I'm not too familiar with the world of biohacking. What's going on in the world of biohacking that's got you interested? I think I, I'm a really big,、um, really big proponent of Donna Haraway's cyborg theory. The idea of the cyborg being like this problematic entity because it's not human and it's not machine. It, it is this strange hybrid entity, and I think. Conceptually, that's always been very interesting to me. Before it was possible to actually start becoming cyborgy,、um, I think I read that essay initially around 2003 when like Google image search just happened and we were all really excited.、Yeah. Right,、um, we had broadband but we didn't have Wi-Fi. So I always I kind of digested that and internalized that essay and carried it around as a metaphor.、Um, and when I started teaching, I 
went to go find, I reread this essay and I hadn't read it in a while. And I went to go find information about, you know, how close we were to the reality of cyborgism and what it looks like. Um, and so since I've been invested in body-based performance uh, art practices as well, I mean, you have people like Stellark who are doing things like getting the ear implanted in his arm and, you know, using the robot arms to do performances. That played into the lecture. And so I started looking at also, you know, the history of body modification and how, you know, in the 80s it used to be impossible to get a nose ring at a shop, right? Yeah. There wasn't anything until Jim Ward started the gauntlet, which was originally operated out of his garage in West Hollywood. Um, and even then, you kind of had to know someone who knew Jim to get a piercing. So we have the beginnings of actual biohacking going on, but it's all done through the body mod community because mainstream medical doesn't know exactly what its place is with this technology. Right, to get anything regulated through the FDA it takes so long that the technology right. is obsolete by the time they get it approved. So we have this weird echelon of the avant-garde now that is just doing their own cybernetic implants as experimentation or you know other body manipulations. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't have anything implanted, but you know the magnet um, implants in the fingertips are kind of a big one. You can sense electrical magnetic pulses if you have a magnet implant in your finger. Okay. I've read that they do one, and then all your other fingers can pick it up. Wow. But, you know, I mean, pacemakers are kind of like a mainstream form of biohacking. Right. So we have the biohacking wearables are starting to become more popular, too, the ones that are not invasive, and that's... AR technology is kind of becoming a big thing. Oh, I like, you know, I love my Pokemon Go AR. Like, that's something I it's my It's my closet addiction. You watch Black Mirror and the scariest stuff in there is AR-based. Well, yeah, Black Mirror is scary because it's really close to where we're at as a culture. Right? You know, kind of in the same way that Children of Men. It's right is. there in Twilight Zone land. Like, with Twilight, the good Twilight Zones that really hit you there. Like, I think they've really captured that, like, fear of technology and where that's where it's taking us and we talk about where our society is headed and blade runner and all that and like kind of crazy stuff well it's a simulated society right it's a simulation driven society um and that's something that was kind of a wake-up call for me in working on spider because you know spider was one of the more wildly successful um, crowdfunding campaigns i had done also those of you out there if you go to the spidermovie.com you can still snag some posters left i don't know for how much longer we'll have that going but cool. right now we still have it um but i had been trying to do a lot of fundraising for performance art prior to that and you know there's marina abramovich a performance artist she has this quote that i love it says in performance, the blood is real, and in theater, the blood is fake, and that's the difference, right? And so the performance art was always fairly controversial because the blood was real, and the audience for that was always very small because of that connection to reality. And when I started working on the film, I noticed I had a lot of people coming out to support the film that would not have performed, you know, would not have supported the performance art. Um, and it brought me to the realization that, you know, people love things that are simulated. We love that level of artifice. And so I have been spending a lot of time recently deconstructing 
celebrity and ideas of fame related to our culture. We have all this glamour attached to Hollywood, which amazes me because the only portrayals we have of Hollywood are by Hollywood. Right. <laughs> and this seems to be, you know, it's, it's, it's a style. Portrayed itself in this glamorous way and it's attracted people and continues to attract people just through its own self-promotion. And that, that glamour, right, that level of glamour, that's the epitome of cultural success for most of, right. most of us. I just was at the gas station today, and they on the gas station TV, it talked about Kylie, Kylie Jenner just became a billionaire. And I was like, what the hell? How is that even possible? She's like 19. Yeah, it's, you know, an interesting and what does she do? Out. What does she even do when she's a billionaire? I don't know. But, I mean, I think that's something that level of persona is something you see, like, right. Angeline play with really early on. Angeline was very ahead of the curve in the fact that her whole performance was just promoting her own persona. She never really did anything yeah. other than drive around in that hot pink Corvette and be <laughs> Angeline. Right? But that was the performance. And so we're starting to see that level of celebrity now that's about that, right? Yeah. It's the Instagram influencers who are ruling pop culture right now. And other than try to live very photogenic lifestyles, what are they doing? Have you watched the Fire Festival documentary? I have not. It's, it really gets into a lot of this stuff and talks about, cause for, it talks about the Fire Festival is kind of this flashpoint of like all of this influencer culture gone awry <laughs> and what it's done and millennials and everything all in that. It's just this microcosm for all of that. And it turned into a giant dumpster fire. And, and, and it's really fascinating just to, they interview everybody. And some of these people, you're just like, are you a real person? Like, do you listen to the things that are coming out of your mouth? Like, it's, but like you talk about just, we've built this world. We've, we did this. We created this world and this is what we're, we're reaping the whirlwind, I guess. Well, it would, it happened so fast. And I think that that's, part of the problem, you know, and I try to go into everything I make with an awareness of this also that the technology has really, the speed of the technology, which the technology develops has really surpassed our, our ability as human beings to assess the impact it's going to have on our culture once it is released right now. I mean, there we didn't anticipate that Facebook would avalanche into right. what it has. I mean, right. we have, you know, discussion of election influencing. We have data mining. It's at the point now where they can follow you on your phone. Data mining is insane. And the more you would, if you like start looking into data mining, you get real paranoid really quickly. Oh, the times just the New York times did an expose on it. That was horrifying where they tracked someone um, intentionally. They got a subscription to one of those big data feeds. They got someone into the office so they could figure out what dot she was, what number. And they brought her back in two weeks, and they said, so we know we went, you went to your ex-boyfriend's house, even though he's your ex. So you went there two times last week, this time of night. I mean, they could tell her all these things. Oh, my gosh. And they use it now to sync up advertising so right. that they know if you're a Starbucks customer and, you know, you're passing a digital billboard, you're more likely to respond to a Starbucks ad if they should. We're in Minority Report where he's walking around and, like, the, the billboards are talking to him. Like you said, like, they're using it to track where you're at, where you're going, so they can coordinate advertising. And then online, 
mean, that's been going on for years. I mean, but now it's entered the real world, not just online, like you said. Right. And as we have the Internet of Things coming up with those 5G oh. networks, it's going to literally be every device you have. I mean, that's part of why I still drive a car that was built in 2002, because it doesn't have a GPS system. Yeah. That has a really cool Kenny Scharf car bomb. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm hesitant to give it up for that. Um, but I also think that it's creating this culture where we're really disconnected from our own our own lived reality, and right. I often wonder what longstanding emotional and social impact um, being an Instagram influencer has on people who are young who come into that very quickly. Because Instagram is the dominant visual medium right now. Oh yeah, it's the only it's the only social media I use. It's not going to stay that way because it never does. Never does. Ten years ago, we were only using Facebook. Ten years before that, we were using MySpace. Ten years before that, we were using Friendster. And I know half of the people up there are like, friend what? That was the the OG social network, though. Exactly. Um, And so, you know, I've, I've heard there have been studies executed about photography where... If we are documenting something as humans, we're less likely to remember specific details about it than if we have just looked at it for the same amount of time. So our brains are being conditioned more and more to let go of details and tiny things about our environments as we interface with them in a mediated way more and more. And I think about that every time I go to a concert and you've got see all the people holding their phones up and that's you're just looking at a sea of people's phones. Oh, I just, you know, the worst one was I went to go see Nick Cave about a year and a half ago. And, you know, Nick Cave is kind of an amazing performer. Yeah, it's a really performance. Yeah. There was a woman and he's singing to her and she's the same distance that we are. We're about three feet, three and a half feet apart for those of you who can't see us, right? And her phone is in between her and Nick Cave. It's like, come on. And I'm just watching this and I'm just like, part of me is just weeping, you know, for this whole situation. But this need to document, right? The pictures are, it doesn't, it didn't happen. Which that's what I want to know is where, who's watching these concert videos? I don't think anybody's watching this stuff. <laughs> that's my thing. That's my thing. If people put it online and put it, I see, I, I don't, I don't know. I scroll past a lot of stuff. Like I, but you're right. People, there's that need to document, to record everything. And that, and like you said, that's causing further consequences because our brains aren't meant to do, operate that way, or at least they're not right now. Well, they'll evolve that way, and so that's one thing I kind of worry about for our culture. Like, in what are we losing? Twenty years ago, what are we losing? And you know, that's always what I worry about in our culture. That's part of why I studied printmaking, and that's part of why I do the performance uh, work that I do. Ooh, printmaking! Yeah, that was how I, I came back to grad school. Do you do zines? I do not do zines. Okay, I, I do them specifically for fine art printing. Okay. I'm just a zine freak. I'm a zine freak. Oh, I can hook you up with some zine people. Um, yeah, yeah. Hazel Maldonado was one that did like a lot of zines, and um, there's like a whole zine um, pop up that happens, I think, on campus, and also oh, at cool. Otis. They do different ones. Um, I I got into it because I originally wanted to study some of the older printmaking methodologies like etching and like lithography um, that were, I thought, at a risk of being culturally lost. Um, You know, and then I got here and I realized that lithography, even though it's really hard to get the equipment to do it, you know, the technology has been very well preserved and very well cared for. um, 
by people who are much better technicians than I am. So, you know, it pushed me in a slightly different direction seeing that. Um, but, you know, that's really, really what I'm interested in overall as an artist is kind of preserving things that can't really be documented in a straightforward way, right? Things like printmaking or performance, there's a certain intangible sensibility that's like beyond language where the only way you can learn these things is by doing them. And so there's that really direct connection um, and that very lived relationship with your mentors in those mediums that I think is really important. Um, And I feel like the more we get into a wholly digitized society, the higher the risk of losing kind of that element of artisan making becomes. Yeah, and I see that that tip in comics too. You look at those like 1950s comics that are printed in the small shops. If you ever get them, it's like that color intensity, right? The registrations. And just get that one that's like the registration's a little bit off. Yeah. Those digital ones, you don't get those kind of right elements of humanity anymore. Well, now Brian's ears are perking up because you mentioned comics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you're an artist, so do you have a relationship with comics? Or um, I was a big comics reader. I still have my collection. It's uh, probably about six long boxes. Nice. Yeah. What are um, some of your big ones? I was a I was a really big fan of the um, Chris Claremont, um, Jim Lee, X-Men reign. I thought that that collaboration was really a good one. Um, I think Chris Claremont is a really interesting writer overall. Um, certain works by Frank Miller um Johan Vasquez is also, I, I've, I've got a lot of love for all of Johan Vasquez's things. Um, just these like really quirky portrayals of offbeat girls. Like I feel sick. I really love that one. And Neil Gaiman at all? Love Neil Gaiman. Um, Sandman was something I really liked. I love Jill Thompson as the penciler because she was a fine artist. So that book just had such a different look to it that I loved. Persepolis is a, you know, the graphic novel is yeah. something that I teach in my class. Oh, that's I, cool. Yeah, I think So you that, incorporate it into your classroom? Yeah, everyone has to read Persepolis. I make them read comic books. I'm really horrible. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, also, all of the Frank Miller Batman. You know, yeah. Kind of the, that whole genre. And, and um, Sin City was something that I really liked reading just kind of stylistically. Too Much Coffee Man. Not familiar with that oh, one. Too Much Coffee Man was one of, like, the best fringe comics ever, and I don't know what happened to it. I have most of them, but it's one of those ones that just kind of didn't make it Aww. into further production. And I, I know, i kind of kind of been meaning to hunt down the uh, maker of Too Much Coffee Man to figure out what's happened and what they're doing now. I can't remember who did it now, but that comic just made me laugh. There was also some spinoff characters, like... Um, too much German white chocolate with almond girls. And she was like this <laughs> just very white pasty girl that had an almond stuck on the side of her face, but it was a very large almond. So it was really funny. Too much espresso guy who had like a tiny coffee cup on his head. Have you done any work in comics or anything like that? I haven't. Um, I am thinking about potentially adapting. I've written, I've written a graphic novel script, but I haven't finished it. Okay. Um, and I cool. don't know if I will ever finish it or if it will just sit there in the pile of unfinished things that inadvertently led to something else. Um, so, yeah, it's something that, it, 
I feel like there might be something in the offing eventually, but it's not anything that I have a direct relationship to right now. Gotcha. I mean, my prints in general are very narrative, and so I feel like the amount of exposure I had to comics really influences the way I do my gallery installations now or the way I think about printmaking in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, the prints I make are fairly limited. I do some illustrated books and stuff, but they're meant to be more of an object and have that hand touch. So do you do like art prints? Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I collected, so I got into collecting art prints, pop art prints for a while. I got into Mondo posters. I don't know if you're familiar with Mondo at all. Yeah, I just watched this really good documentary called um, 24 by 36 that has okay, like, yeah, Mondo I've and all the other guys. I heard about that, it. yeah. It's a great documentary. Um, well, you talk about lithographs and all that stuff. Yeah, and that that um, documentary is really interesting on a technical level as a printmaker, too, because they go through the history and process of lithography in a way that I think is it's really important for humans to understand that that was how printing used to work before digitization. Right. Because the quality is just so different yeah you know that depth you get in a lithograph especially a multicolor yeah lithograph. the ones that i own I, they just pop right off the page in a way that you can't get from normal like a normal poster i put it next to like my mondo movie posters next to a standard movie poster it makes them look like garbage oh no they need their own wall you know yeah. if you have lithographs in your collection you have yeah. to give them their own wall because they just make everything else look horrible by comparison yeah. Um, I've seen some really beautiful ones done out of Tamarin Studios that were like 86 color lithographs. They're wow. just amazing, you know. Um, yeah, I'm trying to see, you know, if um, maybe get a few limited edition movie posters done that are lithographically printed, if I can get a big enough run going. Because I think that that medium is just so beautiful. Yeah, I got really into it for a while, but then I can't afford it anymore. And it got, and also I ran out of wall space. Running out of wall space is like really a, a huge peril that many many creative people face. I see the hardcore poster, the hardcore poster heads. Like I'm in, I'm in some Facebook groups for like Mondo for Mondos and like for specific artists. And um, this guy Tyler Stout is my favorite, um, but I. The way they, a lot of these guys have like these, just these giant like flat files that they keep them all in because they don't, they don't have wall space, but they keep them in these just files basically. And well, it's like, like having to box your comics. Yeah. Like you get to a point where you have to do and it. Like you can't even get the look at them. <laughs> well, do you rotate your collection if you have a big collection? Yeah. You really invested. Yeah, I was, I was talking. I so these guys talk. They they get really deep into the talk of their how they rotate their posters and they go through themes and like they got. I don't know. It's crazy. Some of the poster heads are, it's a different, it's a whole other thing. I think, yeah, I think print collecting and printmaking to do it at that level, you have to be kind of a very thorough and very precise person. Yeah. You know, I think people who are really connoisseurs, who are really sticklers, who can like taste the very undertone in the wine, but on a visual level kind of thing are the people that tend to get into that in that way. But I also think that, for that mentality that curating is really fun. Yeah. You know, the, the, there's a, a kick out of like, oh, you know, this is all like creature feature for November and then, you know, October we're going to do all things with skeletons and really kind of change things up without having to change them up too much. Well, that's cool about printmaking. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize you're into that. 
Yeah, I actually um, studied at Cal State Long Beach under uh, Roxanne Sexauer and Kimiko Miyoshi here. Um, and they have one of the best labs uh, on the West Coast and I think one of the best programs for that also. I learned a lot from them and it's just a really interesting environment to be printing in and making in. So as a teacher, do you see that as an extension of your art that you're influencing artists? Oh, definitely. And I think that cultural dialogue is really important. Um, right before I started teaching, I was doing a lot of archiving work. Um, I did Alexis Smith's archive, and I was also publishing the Book of Medicine, which involved going through uh, Bob Flanagan's archive with uh, Sherry Rose, his widow. And, you know, that was really interesting because I got to learn a lot of things about kind of making art and the way the art world was, you know, 40 years ago that are not really discussed, um, but it was also, it felt very limited in a certain way because I was working with materials from artists who were either deceased or at the end of their career. So I think having the option to come teach, um, you know, that was really important for me because it enabled me to take that information I had learned from these senior artists and kind of give it a home beyond myself. Because I, you know, would box up these archives, I would internalize all this information. And, you know, once something's in an archive, only a few people access it if they're, you know, scholars that are really yeah. interested. And it's like, how pedagogically do we get this information out about just creating in these ways that are so unfettered? How do we pass that forward? That was something and is something that's really important to me. Cool. So something I like to do is just ask some of the best people what they're into right now. So what are you into right now? What are you watching? What are you reading? Um, right now I am reading some Julia Kristeva. Um, I am watching some Walking Dead. Walking Dead. Are you are you current? I'm not. I'm not. I've been four episodes behind right now. Okay, I'm not. I'm, I haven't watched in a long time. <laughs> I'm just curious where you're at because some people have. Like, if different people have different relationships with that show, and, like, some people have given up on it, other people have come back on it. It's interesting because they're starting to, you know, explore how civilization becomes rebuilt, which is something right. we don't look at in a lot of zombie movies, a few of the Romero ones. Yeah, Romero got into that. Um, yeah, it's, um, I can't remember which one he did. It was, like, The Land of the Dead, where they had rebuilt yeah. the city. That also had, like, this weird commentary about racism and immigration built into that movie. That one was always really interesting to me. Um, I've been watching a lot of 1950s, uh, spider movies that my, my friend Joseph Kaufman gave me for research. <laughs> so those have been fun. There's, um, this one prop spider that the studios made that got kind of like passed through all these spider movies. So okay. Like, oh, that, oh, there's the cheesy spider. Lavalantula. I haven't seen Lavalantula. Um, the one that I watched that was really great that I loved was Earth versus the Spider. Okay. I think I've seen that one. And then Tarantula was the yeah. one that I really liked in terms of like vintage spider movies. Um, you know, I've been watching like a lot of 1950s horror because I also like the idea of these live action special effects. Like in the um, in the early, um, oh, what was the Evil Dead when they have the claymation oh, yeah. monsters right in the first one? I mean, the reboot of Evil Dead was like good and disgusting and everything I had hoped for, right? But I, right. Mean, I kind of missed that that camp practical. Because I mean, there's something Sam Raimi is was just a genius of special effects and like some of the things that they did in that movie you can't do with a computer. 
it, it, you can't, it has to be, you have to, a tangible and like, there's a tangible quality to it that I, yeah. And on just the, the, the blood and like, the, that was real, like they, they, they poured that blood over everything. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, horror, horror should be visceral, right? Yeah. You can't get that visceral quality. And I have to say, you know, there's something about, like, being sprayed in the face with fake blood that causes a reaction that you cannot get <laughs> from simulation, right? It, that interaction, even though that blood is fake, there's still a moment in your psychology where you can't delineate when you're on set. And I think that if you get into a lot of simulated special effects with horror, that it doesn't kind of have the same weight right. in a certain way. Um, so, you know, on my queue, I recently discovered the Soska sisters. And so American Mary is something that I mm. have lined up to watch, but I haven't watched yet. Um, I'm not good with a lot of horror. I get too freaked out. I, I live by myself, so I get freaked out. <laughs> yeah, that's the best. Uh, I felt like it had more impact when I lived by myself, really. I kind of um, enjoy <laughs> yeah, it's, being it's, as scared. Sometimes it's fun to be scared, but I don't know. Sometimes I get too scared. I, I don't know. I have a vivid imagination. Well, I mean, it depends on what it is, too, right? There's certain certain forms of horror that are a little bit less, kind of, like, normalized, right? Things that are psychological horror right. are a little bit harder to deal with. Like, that, I think, is why human centipede is so scary to so many people, because it's like your car breaks down, you go to make a phone call. Conceivably could happen, right? right. I mean, it's totally possible. That was, like, hostile for me, because I traveled a lot. Mm. Yeah, Hostel's a weird one. Um, that one, I've, I've watched all three of those. Um, the third one wasn't very good. No. I mean, the second one, I mean, I think it was the second one I'm interested in because I, I look at a lot of um, women who execute violence and horror and like yeah. what situations women have to be put in in terms for it to be acceptable for them, narratively speaking, to commit a violent act. And that right? one kind of puts that on its head. It does. Um but, it, you know, it also plays into it. It does. That, it does both. Yeah. You know, the one thing I've noticed that's pretty consistent with the exception of uh, Mike's movie Audition in horror is that we allow women to commit atrocious acts only as acts of vengeance, right? You see right. this in Kill Bill. You see this in I Spit on Your Grave. Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, vengeance those movies. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that also interests me about House of Cards because you see Robin Wright executing these acts of violence in the same way that men have in previous seasons, just really unapologetically. Like she hasn't been wronged in any way. She's just doing it because she's vicious. Right. And so I think that that actually is one of the things that sort of turns that model on its head. Right. Because I think that's also one of the things that we don't address in our culture that, that leads to this disparity between the genders that we see women as not being capable of doing these things. When in fact we've created that myth, right? And why, you know, who's being served by that? I mean, that's something I don't have an answer for. Dudes are being served by that. <laughs> bros. Bros, dudes and bros. You know, generally the people who are served by misogyny are dudes and bros. Maybe, I don't know, we're going to get some angry dudes and bros. And that's the okay, they can, they can yell at me all they want. Dudes, bros, and trolls. Sounds like the name of a punk band. <laughs> no, dudes, bros, and trolls. So tell me about what you're reading. I'm not familiar with. Um, Kristeva is a one of the post-structuralist theorists. She writes about um, horror and looking, and she does it in terms of psychoanalytic theory. Um, I'm also reading uh, 
Dr. Karen Kleinfelder's book about Picasso, which is really interesting right now. It's about how Picasso related to the model. She also has a really good lecture on uh, cyborgs and uh, the post-human that you can Google. Let's to check that out. Yeah, she gave it, um, I think it was a lecture she gave to Biola University about five, six years ago. She talks about uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as the governator and uh, how that works with cyborg theory. It's pretty funny. That's um, pretty cool. Yeah, that's uh, pretty much the only things I've ingested recently, I think. Um, yeah, I'm going for Sepulus a reread before I teach it next week. It's always fun. So what, what classes do you teach? Right now I teach writing about visual arts, which is a thesis development class. Okay. So that's where you're getting into different visual arts? I have, yeah, I have students that are all disciplines, and so um, that is really interesting to me, to be able to work with people who are musicians or um, gallery artists and, you know, young artists who, some artists don't really know what they want to do yet when they hit my class, too, and so some of the fun is helping them figure out what is really them and, like, what's sustainable for them to work on long-term, you know, what they can live with, the art they can marry. So before we wrap up, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your movie because it sounds cool. Oh yeah, so um, how'd how'd you get? How did this happen? Completely on accident. Um, So what had happened is I was developing some performance work, and I decided that you know this performance I was working on had gotten very intense, and so I was just going to take a couple days off. So I was perusing the internet, and I was reading Dana's blog. and I found this story about this woman who comes home drunk from a holiday party and this giant spider climbs in through her window and she's totally wasted and she's trying to battle the spider, which sometimes when I'm really drunk, like I wonder if something weird happens like that, how it's going to go down, right? Which really keeps me from drinking excessively, to be honest. Um, not giant spiders specifically, <laughs> but, you know, other factors in life. But I think that that is something that you know, women have to think about more often than men. Yeah. And so that story resonated with me for that reason. And um, it's like, you know, this, I thought about it more and I said, you know, this story would make a really good B-horror movie. Um, so I sent it to my friend Dulcinea Cercelli, um, who produced and created the webisode series The Horror of Babylon. I don't know if you've seen any of Not those. Not familiar with it. They're, they're really funny. It's um, The premise is that it's a feminist bookstore owner that's um, possessed by a warrior goddess spirit that then enacts acts of vengeance against people who are misogynists or racists. Okay. So she's this kind of like slutty avenger warrior goddess character. Um, and so I thought that, you know, the ethos of that kind of matched up with Dana. And so I sent it to Dulcinea. And Dulcinea writes back with, oh, you know, I love this story. Like, I found seed funding. Let's get doing this. This is what we need to do it justice. You know, she had just directed a short um, and got it in a few festivals. So we started getting it going. And then I was chatting with Dana on Facebook and said, you know, wouldn't it be really funny if we could get Ron Jeremy into a spider suit to do this movie? And Dana wrote back with, oh, I totally love Ron Jeremy, and if I could do anything with him, it would totally be something that is bucket list worthy. So I had just met Ron. Um, I had met Ron a few times on the Susan Block show when I was on there as a guest. And, uh-huh. you know, I got in touch with him, and I said, you know, do you maybe want to do this? And he said, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. So we did it. <laughs> That's so cool. 
It was it was very organic. So Ron Jeremy is the spider. Ron Jeremy is our spider. He made a very good spider. Um, yeah, and I have to say that I highly recommend downloading this movie just to watch Ron dance in the spider suit at the end of the credits. It's pretty hilarious. Awesome. So people can find that. Where can they find it? Um, right now you can reserve your digital download by pledging on thespidermovie.com. You can go to that website and it will take you to the webpage. It'll take you to the GoFundMe right now and then subsequently it'll take you to the webpage where you can see screenings, etc. So that's thespidermovie.com. Indeed. Is there anything else you'd like to promote? You got anything else going um, on? Yeah, you can check my website out, com, or you can follow me on Facebook, um, and that will have anything I'm doing that's going on right now, you know, anything current. Awesome. Well, Rhiannon, thank you very much for being on Radio Brendo Man. It was a pleasure. It was nice to meet you. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Thank you for listening.
To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. And amusings are your musings. Here age relives fond memories of the past. And here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Hi, I'm David. And I'm Kayla. And if it wasn't readily apparent from that, we're huge nerds about Disney. That's why we're doing the Animusings Podcast. Once a month, we'll sit down and talk about a film in detail from the Walt Disney Animation Studios filmography, covering them in chronological order, from Snow White to Moana and beyond. To Moana and beyond! Sweetie, we're not doing Pixar yet. We'll do that after. (laughs) That's going to be a long time coming. Anyway, if that sounds up your alley, come join Kayla and I, and maybe a guest or two, as we explore the Disney animated canon, film by film. With the hope that it'll be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. Ooh, nicely said. Don't thank me. Thank Walt. This podcast is a part of the Benview Network. You can find this and other podcasts like it at BenviewNetwork.com.